everyone. Welcome to another episode of Crime Talk with TNZ. I'm Rhiannon. And I'm Ellie. Make sure wherever you're listening to us that you hit that follow or subscribe button. Tell your friends to listen to us. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, make sure to give us a rating so we can get on the map more. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. That's where we post all our updates. We really, really appreciate it. Today, we are going to talk about serial killer Robert Joe Long, also known as Bobby Joe Long. So for the duration of this podcast, we're going to refer to him as Bobby. Bobby was born on October 14, 1953 in Canova, West Virginia to Joe and Luella Long. Joe and Luella's relationship did not last long, so Bobby was raised by his mother alone, and they moved to Florida when he was two years old. Throughout his childhood, Bobby had a series of injuries. One time, he fell off a swing, and when he regained consciousness, he found one eyelid skewered by a stick. The following year, he was thrown from his bicycle crashing headfirst into a parked car with injuries, including loss of several teeth and a severe concussion. At age seven, he fell from a pony onto his head, remaining dizzy and nauseous for several weeks after the accident. He had an attention disorder and a misformed chin. Luella tried waitressing to make money, but found it wasn't enough to cover basic necessities. So she got a job at Big Daddy's, which was a bar lounge type of vibe place. During this time is when troubles with Bobby really started. He didn't like the way that she dressed to go to work, but wear dresses that were revealing, and he didn't like that. For a period of time, when he was 12 to 13 years old, they had to share one room and they had to sleep in one bed. She would often bring men home and he resented her for that. Professor Louis Schlesinger, a forensic psychologist, says that adolescent boys need to see their mothers as asexual. When the mother walks around partially dressed and has many suitors, it can have an unsettling effect on the boy. It causes the boy to feel shame and anger towards his mother. Yuella did try to be a good mother the best she could and spend time with Bobby. They would often go to the beach. One time, Bobby almost drowned, and he blamed his mother for looking at men instead of watching him more closely. This incident just added to the anger he was building towards her. They were close, but they fought constantly because of all the different men she would bring around. As, as he grew into his teenage years, a rare medical disorder began to arise. Bobby was born with an extra X chromosome, which caused him to develop breasts. He ended up having a number of surgeries to reduce them. The disorder caused a great insecurity within Bobby, and he would never take his shirt off in front of others. This ordeal added to his hatred of women. Bobby skipped school as much as possible. He didn't graduate from high school. His attitude didn't fit in well with most of the kids. He had a small group of friends and some would tell you he was a wise ass and that he would take things too far sometimes. They would often go spearfishing and they said he enjoyed seeing the damage and death he could do to the fish. In 1972, Bobby was having a hard time finding a job. So he joined the military and he was stationed in the Homestead Air Force Base. Two years later, he marries his childhood friend, Cindy. A month later, he gets into an accident while riding his motorcycle. A car crashed into him, causing him to fly 100 feet and land on his head. 
In the wake of the accident, his demeanor and sexual needs began to change. While in the hospital, Cindy would visit him daily, and he would demand her to perform sexual acts on him. The nurses said he masturbated up to five times a day. He also started to become physical towards Cindy. They would argue constantly. He would beat her daily. One beating that was particularly bad, Cindy was hospitalized. She said she was inches away from dying that day. Cindy decided she had had enough of his bad treatment and loaded a double barrel shotgun and stood over him while he was sleeping. His alarm went off and he looked at her and said, go ahead, you don't have the nerve. Cindy couldn't do it because of their children were in the next room and she didn't want to be without them. So Cindy packed up her things and the kids and she left. They were officially divorced in 1980. No longer married and unemployed since he was discharged from the military due to his head injury, Bobby was growing restless. Bobby then began terrorizing Miami, Ocala, and Fort Lauderdale as the classified ads rapist, preying on housewives in midday attacks. He would look for ads of items being sold in the people's homes. If the husband was home, then he would simply say he wasn't interested in the item. If the wife was home alone, then he would bound her, rape her violently, and then rob the home before leaving. Bobby committed at least 50 rapes that we know of during that time. In October 1981, Sharon Richards, who shared a house with Bobby, accused him of rape, but the police did not have enough evidence to make a charge. Just two weeks later, Bobby hit Sharon during an argument. He then decided to leave Tampa and went to stay with his parents in West Virginia until 1983. In July 1983, Bobby met Emma at a Humana hospital where he worked as an x-ray tech and she as a nurse. They soon became a couple. Emma encouraged him to attend church. He gave her jewelry that were stolen from his rape victims. She never questioned him about how he was able to afford these expensive gifts and was unaware that they came from his victims. Then, in September, he was found guilty on the assault charges stemming from the 1981 incident with Sharon. This enraged Bobby and he wrote numerous letters to the judge demanding a new trial. He claimed he had done nothing criminal and that the whole incident had been Sharon's fault. A month later, he was charged with sending an obscene letter and photographs to a 12-year-old girl in Tampa. Officials had traced phone calls Bobby had made to the 12-year-old and he received a sentence of two days in jail and six months probation. In early 1984, Bobby got his retrial in the Sharon Richards case and was acquitted of assault charges, despite the testimony of a number of witnesses against him. As he left the courtroom, he turned and laughed at her. On May 13th, a couple of teenage boys were walking across a field near I-75, southeast of Tampa, and then they noticed an overwhelmingly bad smell. They went closer to investigate and found the mangled remains of a nude woman. It was estimated that the body had been there for three days. She was face down, her wrists were loosely tied together behind her back, and a noose draped three times around her neck. The ropes used to bind her and the one around her neck were two different types. She had severe bruising from being beaten prior to death. The woman's hips had been broken in order to allow for both of her legs to be pulled at right angles to her body. Investigators felt that she had been placed that way for shock value. Medical examiner Charles Digg performed the autopsy and stated the cause of death as strangulation and confirmed that she had been raped. Due to the infestation of maggots 
and the decomposition, especially around her face, it was hard to determine her age and race. However, he speculated that she might be Asian. At the scene, investigators found a set of tire tracks that led into and out of the field. They cast plaster tire impressions and found that the front and right rear tires were the same standard tread design, but the left rear tire had an unusual tire design. They also found red nylon fibers on the victim and sent that back to the FBI to be analyzed. The FBI concluded that it was a type of cheap carpeting used in an automobile. A missing persons report of a young Asian female seemed to match the victim's physical features. Remember, this is the early 80s, so DNA was not used yet. They had to confirm her identity with fingerprints, and they were able to confirm that it was Lana Long. She was 20 years old and had worked as a dancer at the Sly Fox Lounge on the Tampa Strip. She didn't have a car and would often look to strangers for rides. It seemed that she met the wrong person at the wrong time. Her murder was not mentioned in the press much. Her story was buried in the back of the Tampa Tribune, so the city had no idea of the monster that was lurking around. Two weeks later, on May 27th, another female body was found in a lover's lane near Plant City, north of I-4 in Hillsborough County. It was estimated that she had been dead for about 12 hours. She was on her back wearing a green t-shirt which had been ripped up the front and pulled back, leaving her arms in the sleeves to bind them. Her wrists had been tied loosely behind her back. A rope had been wounded three times around her neck. Her neck and cheeks had been cut. She had a wide slicing cut on her neck almost a foot long from ear to ear that severed a large blood vessel and she had a massive blunt trauma injury over her left ear. She was stabbed, strangled, and beaten to death. There was also evidence that she had been raped. A blood-stained white jumper and white pantyhose were found hanging from a tree limb. On the victim's body, there was a reddish fiber on her left breast and several strands of hair on her stomach and under her right hand. Semen stains were found on the victim's clothing. There were tire tracks found at the scene. Those tire tracks and the red fibers gave investigators a connection to Lana's murder, and they believed they were both committed by the same person. Through hair analysis, they determined that the hair came from a Caucasian male. Investigators put out a composition drawing of the victim in hopes that someone would identify her. She turned out to be Michelle Sims. Michelle was 22 years old and was working as a prostitute. They questioned other girls to try to figure out who was the last person she was seen with, but all leads went cold. With Lana and Michelle's murders, they figured this man was targeting young prostitutes, and they went out to the Tampa Strip and... They just wanted to warn as many girls as possible that there was a Caucasian male with brown hair murdering prostitutes and if they saw anything strange to let them know. On June 8th, a body of a young woman was found by workers in an orange grove. Her body had been there two weeks and was severely decomposed. Investigators said that she was nearly liquefied. She was later identified as Elizabeth Ludenbach, a shy 22-year-old girl that worked on an assembly line. She had gone for a walk from the mobile park she lived, and when she never returned, her mother reported her missing. Elizabeth wasn't linked to the other two murders because there were clear differences that made investigators believe she wasn't killed by the same murderer. Unlike the other two victims, she was fully clothed, but her hyoid bone was broken, indicating that she had been strangled. 
She wasn't tied up and she wasn't left by an interstate. She was also not a prostitute, hitchhiker, or a dancer. At this time, she was considered a victim of a random murder. Only later would her clothing be checked and found to yield the same two types of red fibers that would link her to the other cases. For three to four months, there were no murders. Then, on October 7th, a woman's body was found by a ranch hand on a cattle ranch north of Hillsborough State Park. She had been dead for around a week. Her body had been shoved under a barbed wire fence and was lying face down. Her clothing was scattered all around that area, her panties on the fence and her bra on the gate. She had been raped and strangled and then killed with a shot to the back of her head. The use of a gun was different from Lana and Michelle's cases. She was identified by her fingerprints as Chanel Devon Williams, an 18-year-old girl who had just been released from jail after being arrested for prostitution. The lab found both types of red carpet fibers on her clothing, a brown Caucasian pubic hair on her sweater, and semen stains on her clothing. The semen found on Chanel did not match the semen found on Michelle, but investigators felt all the other similarities in the cases outweighed the different semen because both women were prostitutes. They felt Lana, Michelle, and Chanel were murdered by the same person. On October 14th, a fifth body was discovered in northeastern Hillsborough County. Her wrists were bound with a red bandana. Her legs and neck had been tied with a long, thick shoelace. She had been beaten in the face and raped. Her yellow sweatshirt was pulled up to her neck, exposing a bruised and bloody torso, which showed signs that she had been dragged. She was wearing only the sweatshirt, but the rest of her clothing were scattered nearby. The cause of death was strangulation. Because she was a known prostitute and drug addict, the investigating team had recognized her. But she was officially identified by her fingerprints as 28-year-old Karen Beth Dinsfren. Red fibers and brown Caucasian pubic hairs were found on her, which linked her to the other victims once again. Two weeks after Karen is found, on Halloween, another body of a woman is found by a man clearing a ditch next to US 301 on the northern edge of Hillsborough County. She was mummified with a little hair still attached to her skull. She had been strangled to death with the black cloth choker that she wore around her neck. It was difficult to tell when she had been killed and dumped there. There was no evidence to tie her to the other victims, but investigators didn't completely rule her out of the investigation. They wouldn't learn of her identity until they had Bobby in custody. She was 22-year-old prostitute Kimberly Kyle Hoops, also known as Sugar. On the evening of November 2nd, Lisa McVeigh is abducted by Bobby and held for 26 hours. Throughout those 26 hours, he repeatedly rapes her. And we're not going to get into the details in this episode about Lisa because our previous episode is a whole episode dedicated to her. But remember that Lisa was able to provide the police with details about her captor. A couple of days after Lisa's release on November 6th, another woman's body is found in Pasco County, a county over from Hillsborough. A woman was riding her horse on her ranch and came across the victim. The victim's body parts had been severed and scattered throughout the field. A cord was tied twice around the neck and thick shoelace bound the wrist together. Dr. Joan Woods, the medical examiner for Pasco County, determined the victim had been there for about two weeks and the cause of death was strangulation. 
At the time, they didn't know the identity of the victim. In custody, Bobby revealed her identity as 18-year-old Virginia Lee Johnson. He picked her up on Tampa Strip. Then, on November 12th, a sign painter in Tampa came across another woman's body. The victim had a leash-like noose around her neck and rope burns on her body. She had been dead for two to three days, and her cause of death was strangulation. Notice a pattern? Her face was severely beaten. Her legs were forced open, similar to that of Lana's body. Her clothing had been thrown near her. Inside her jeans was a driver's license. She was 21-year-old Kim Marie Swan. She worked as a dancer at the Sly Fox Lounge, and there was red carpet fibers and some brown hairs on her jeans. I feel like her and Lana were placed in the same way because they both came from the Sly... It's the same place. The Sly Fox Lounge. What if they knew each other? I mean, it's possible. They, they could have been they, co-workers. Yeah. Police had discovered all these bodies in a short amount of time, but had no leads as to who was committing these murders. They were trying to find this murderer and trying to find Lisa's abductor. They didn't know yet that this was the same person. On November 15th, detectives Wolf and Helms were on cruise patrol in Tampa when they saw a red Dodge Magnum. They pulled the car over and they checked his license. Lo and behold, it was Robert Joe Long. They told him they were looking for a robbery suspect, so he cooperated and let them take a photo of him. With the photo, Lisa confirmed that he was her abductor. The task force checked the bank statements and found that Bobby had made a withdrawal at precisely the time McVeigh said her abductor had made a withdrawal. They then examined Bobby's criminal record and found that he was currently on probation for aggravated assault in Hillsborough earlier in 1984. They put surveillance teams on him and tapped into his phone line. They then got vehicular search warrant and an arrest warrant on the charges of kidnapping and sexual battery. In preparation to take him, they put together four teams, an arrest and security transport team, a vehicular seizure and search team, a residence search team, and a neighborhood survey team to interview Bobby's neighbors. Police grabbed Bobby as he came out of a movie theater and placed him under arrest. All the other teams went into action. They removed carpet from his car and sent it to the lab to be analyzed. They disassembled the car's interior to check for fibers from victims' clothing and rope, victims' fingerprints, blood, and any other physical evidence that they could possibly find. In Bobby's apartment, they found a barrette that belonged to Lisa. They found plenty of nude photos of women, including photos that Bobby had taken of himself raping some victims. They also located pieces of female clothing. Bobby signed a consent to interview form and was interrogated. He quickly admitted to kidnapping Lisa and to having sex with her many times. Uh, he claimed that he had unloaded the gun and put the bullets in the trash so he wouldn't be tempted to hurt her. The interrogators then brought up the physical evidence they had on him, and they showed him photos of the murder victims and asked him if he knew them. Bobby told them no, and then asked to use the bathroom. When he returned, they again started talking about the physical evidence, which Bobby responded with, I think I might need a lawyer. The sergeant urged Bobby to be honest because they already had a case against him. Bobby smiled and said, well... I guess you got me good. Yes, I killed them. All the ones in the paper. I did them all. 
He realized that he'd set himself up when he had not killed Lisa McVeigh, as he had done with the others. I knew when I let her go that it would be a matter of time. I didn't even tell her not to talk to police or anything. I just didn't care anymore, and I wanted to stop. I was sick inside. He began detailing each murder some investigators knew about and others they weren't aware of, like 21-year-old Vicky Elliott. She went missing in September as she was walking to work for her midnight shift at the Ramada Inn. She had accepted a ride, and when he tried to tie her up, she fought him off with a pair of scissors. That angered him, so he strangled her. He drew a map to direct the investigators to her body. In addition to admitting to these murders, he also let investigators know that he was responsible for all the series of rapes that had occurred. They realized they had the classified ads rapist in front of them. Let's listen to what Bobby said his reasoning is for what he did. All the victims, all of them, you know, and you're talking about a lot of them, a lot. A lot of lives just gone right down the tubes because of me. You know, in one way or another. And it's not a good feeling. It's not a pleasant feeling. I'm not proud of anything I've done. And the worst thing is I don't understand why. I don't understand why. After a grand jury hearing, Bobby was charged with eight counts of murder and sexual battery and nine counts of kidnapping with one count of murder pending for Virginia Johnson, which was decided by Pasco County's grand jury. He was also charged with violating his probation for aggravated assault. Because of the murder charges, he, he was refused bail. While in custody, there were two other bodies found. On November 19th, a woman's corpse floated up on the Hillsboro River. She had been strangled. She was never identified, but she fit Bobby's profile. Then, on November 22nd, another woman's skeletal remains were found. She was identified as Artist Wick and her remains were at least six to eight months old. Her hands were bound and her death was attributed to Bobby by the FBI and Hillsborough County Police Department, although he never confessed to the crime and he was never charged. Police believe that while she was the last victim found, she may have been the first to die. The state attorney and public defender's office in Hillsborough County reached a plea bargain for eight of the homicides and abduction and rape of Lisa McVeigh. Bobby pled guilty on September 24th, 1985, to all those crimes, receiving 26 life sentences without the possibility of parole and seven life sentences with the possibility of parole after 25 years. The state retained the option to seek the death penalty for the murder of Michelle Sims. In July 1986, the penalty phase for Michelle Sims' trial was held in Tampa, and Bobby was found guilty and sentenced to die in Florida's electric chair. So a little fun fact for everyone, Florida is one of the few states that the electric chair is still an option for execution. Though since the lethal injection was introduced, that's the typical method. During his incarceration, Lisa tried to visit him. Let's hear her thoughts on that. Um, requested through our state governor, I want to go see him. And I was denied. I was told that Florida is probably one of the last states that doesn't let a victim talk to the perpetrator because they can't control what he's going to say. I get that. I understand that. And that he may um, interrupt my healing. That's my choice. That shouldn't be their choice to make the decision. I want to show him that I prevailed. I, I'm strong. I want you to know my name now. My name is Lisa. 
It's like one horrific ordeal that got me out of another one at home, and I just want to say thank you. I know it sounds weird. It's closure, and it's stand up for the other victims who can't be there. And those victims are forgotten. They're, they're, they're forgotten. Who talks about the victims' families? I mean, who, who does that anymore? I do. I do a lot of speaking engagements. I have a PowerPoint. And the last slide is, in remembrance of, take a moment in silence. As every victim and their picture and their name and their age. I said, let's say a prayer for them and their families. I do. Because I could have been on that PowerPoint. On May 23rd, 2019, Bobby was executed by lethal injection. Bobby was given the chance to impart his final words. He chose to say nothing. Lisa sat front row at his execution, along with two dozen others in the crowded gallery. Frank Elliott, the brother of Ficky Elliott, wore a white collared shirt, the 10 victims photo screen printed on the back. Algalana Douglas, sister of Chanel Williams, was also present. Linda Nuttall, who was one of the women Bobby attacked while he was the classified ads rapist, was also present for his execution. She said, I had and I continue to have a joyful life. Today, justice was served. His execution won't bring all the loved ones they lost back, but the families feel justice has been served and they finally have the closure they needed. Thank you everyone so much for tuning in to our episode of Crime Talk with TMZ. Thank you for listening to our podcast. I know that there are a lot of crime podcasts to choose from out there. We will always have new stories for you every week. Check our Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook pages for updates. Crime Talk with TNZ is hosted by Rhiannon Torino and Elizabeth Zambrano. Our music is by Elizabeth Zambrano and our logo is by Alexander Zust.